All right, we are continuing in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. If you remember, I said Galatians has three main parts. The first, the bulk of the first two chapters are all Peter's biography, or Paul's biography, excuse me, in order to illustrate the point in chapter 1, verse 11. That the gospel didn't come from man. In verse 12, it came from Christ. And so Paul then gives us his biography to illustrate the point that he didn't get the gospel of free acceptance with God only by faith and not by works from man. He got it from God. And our uh, four verses conclude that biographical uh, session section before he gets into what the gospel actually is. And this last one illustrates very plainly that he didn't get the gospel from Peter because here he is opposing Peter. He didn't get the gospel that you are justified freely by faith from Peter because look at Peter's example. Peter believed it too until it put peer pressure on him and then he separated from it and Paul rebuked him. So he didn't get this gospel from Peter. He got it from Christ. Peter got it from Christ. All the apostles got it from Christ. And so Paul is here saving a pretty big part of his life at the end of the argument to put a big exclamation point at the end of this. And so the Holy Spirit leads us in this section to see a pretty significant conflict to illustrate where the gospel came from. Now, of course, as I said among the kids, it's like you never graduate from junior high. You never, unfortunately, graduate from cliques, from not wanting to be around the cool kids. So you may have a close friend at work, but then in another context, you kind of act like you don't even know him or her. Maybe that's been done to you. I remember in school, uh, my dad and I were able to hunt out on a property of, actually the last name were the Hunts, and his son Jeremy uh, was in my class, and I was cool with him when we were out there hunting, and when we were at school, I didn't like him, because he wasn't a cool kid. And so that's sort of what Peter's doing, and yet it's at another level, because Peter's removal from the Gentile Christians was communicating to them that they're not in heaven because they're not like the cool kids who are circumcised, don't eat pork, and many other things. And so he was repudiating the gospel and causing them great harm. So that's what we're going to see here. Let me read these verses, pray, and then we've got to spend a bunch of time in Acts before we get back into here. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, 
live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, please consider us and our afflictions and deliver them. Deliver us from them that we might love your word. And so, God, help us to take all of the difficulties we are in and revive us as, you, as we hear your word. For salvation is from you, and great are your tender mercies. And so revive us according to your judgments. Revive us according to your loving kindness, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me... This is from Timothy George's commentary on Galatians. It's a, a, a more recent one, and it, it just summarizes these two chapters real briefly. I want to do that to get that in your mind, and then we're going to go to Acts to give you the background to what we see in these four verses. So first this. After God, this is, he's putting all of the first two chapters into his own words in about eight or ten sentences. So this is uh, in Paul's, as if Paul's speaking. After God called me to an apostle, I didn't even go to Jerusalem for several years. When I did finally get there, it was only for a brief get acquainted visit with Peter. And I also bumped into James, who was present as well. After this, my preaching ministry took me far to the north, to Syria and Cilicia. <clears throat> During this time, the Christians of Judea only received hearing reports about my work, and they praised the Lord for what he was doing through me. It was well over a dozen years later when I returned to Jerusalem again, this time to talk with the leaders about what we could do collaboratively to most effectively uh, evangelize the world. James, Peter, and John stood shoulder to shoulder with me against false brothers who intruded in our meeting, tried to force my young friend Titus, a Gentile, to be circumcised. Of course, I didn't budge an inch. When the dust had cleared, the pillar apostles and I sealed our agreement with a cordial embrace. Given this outcome, you can imagine how disappointed I was when Peter came to Antioch and engaged in a kind of behavior that I knew was against even his own convictions. Not even Peter, great as he is, could resist the pressure to back away from his earlier commitment to Christian liberty in Christ. So I had to oppose him publicly because of this case. No less than during my second visit to Jerusalem, the truth of the gospel was at stake. So that's what we're seeing. Now, if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We got to set the pieces in place here. Acts chapter 10 is a massive turning point in how God was redeeming sinners. Acts chapter 10 is like Noah repopulating the earth after the ark. Acts chapter 10 is like God calling Abraham in Genesis 12. Acts chapter 10 is more important than the people returning from exile and rebuilding. This is huge in communicating to us how we come to faith in Christ and who can come to faith in Christ. So Acts chapter 10 is massive. It's a Mount Rushmore in the Bible. It's really big. For those of you who love the Second Amendment, it's, it's not like the Second Amendment, but it's bigger and way more important than that in American. This is our kind of language here. All right, so in Acts chapter 10, what happens is you have, uh, before this, 
Everything before this is basically only Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. And the only churches are those among Jewish people in the Jewish lands. So mainly in and around Jerusalem. So the church, there's thousands of people who have come to Christ, but they're only Jewish, and they're only in the Jewish homelands. And then Acts chapter 10 happens. A guy named Cornelius, who's a Roman soldier, who is a Gentile, he's a Greek, he's not Jewish, receives a vision from God to go and send for Peter to have Peter come. Now, you don't really get how radical that is, but this would be like a um, former slave who's now an American soldier who gets a vision to go and send for Robert E. Lee to have him come to dinner. And maybe he was Robert E. Lee's former slave or something. This is radical. So he does this. At the same time, Peter is at a buddy's house, and he's hungry. And while food is preparing, being prepared, he goes up. We're in Acts 10, 9 and following. He's on the housetop praying. Now on the housetop, it would be like going out to your porch, to your deck. So he's just out there praying. And he gets a vision. And his vision is all kinds of animals that he wasn't allowed to eat as a Jew under the law of Moses, the, the sacrificial law. He wasn't allowed to eat. And God tells him, Peter, kill him and eat him. And Peter's first response is, no way. I am a good God-fearing Jew. I've never done it. I won't do it. Three times God gives Peter this vision to make sure that Peter is not able to mistake who it comes from. Now, Peter in verse 17 is perplexed about this. And at that same time, the men sent from Cornelius arrive, and God tells in verse 19, the Spirit tells Peter, go down. Three men are looking for you. Accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now, God has to tell Peter that because it was not permissible under the Jewish hypocritical law for Jews to go to the Gentiles' homes and especially not to eat with them. Especially not to eat with them. So again, this would have been radical. I've told you I've been reading about Crazy Horse and Lakota Indians, the Battle of Bighorn. This would have been like a Lakota Indian after the massacres being told by God to go and get the American generals and have them come over with you. So this is a big deal. But Peter goes, and Peter's there, and in verse 28, Peter preaches the gospel to them. Or, I'm sorry, verse 34, Peter begins preaching the gospel to them. And at the end of this section, Peter in verse 40 he preaches that Christ has been raised, and uh, he's preaching in verse 43, forgiveness of these sins, and in verse 44 to 48, those who heard were converted, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they begin to preach in tongues. Why is that important? Well, who in Acts chapter 2 preached in tongues? The apostles, the Jewish Christians. And now Gentile Christians are receiving the same Spirit with the same sign. What is that communicating? Everyone can come to Christ. It's not one people. It's not about circumcision. 
It's not about what you do or don't eat. It's only through faith in Christ. The same Spirit indwells all who come to Christ without distinction and only by faith. And this was radical. Now, this isn't new. God had told Abraham that through one of his descendants, all nations would be blessed. Throughout the whole Old Testament, it was always going to go universal, worldwide, and that's what's happening here. It's massive. Now, what happens at the beginning of chapter 11 is it's reported back that Peter did this. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men, and listen to this, and ate with them. Now, we're giggling because we don't understand the importance of that. We'll get to that in a moment, but just take note of that. Now, Peter explains them everything that's happened, and uh, at the end of the day, everybody rejoices. Look at verse 17 and 18 of chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, so you got that background. Keep that in your mind. This is how the Gentiles came to faith in Christ. So that's one background to our text. That's one. Say one. That's one. Two is the church in Antioch. If you keep going, the next heading in chapter 11 of Acts is what? The church in Antioch. So what happened after this thing with Peter is persecution really broke out among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. You remember Stephen? He was the first Christian murdered. Paul, who's not converted, or what was converted just before this, but he's bringing out threats. And what happened then was these Jewish Christians around, in and around Jerusalem scattered. And they typically went to other cities that had large Jewish populations. And look at verse 19. They scattered, and they went speaking the word, but who did they only preach the word to? Only the Jews. Look at verse 20. How does it begin? But. So you have Jews scattered. When they go, they only preach the gospel to other Jews. They hadn't got the message yet about Peter and the Gentiles' inclusion. But there were some of them who got it. They were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. These are Jewish Christians, but they live not in Israel. Yeah, And, And they come to Antioch. And who do they speak to? The Greeks. Now, some of your Bibles say Hellenists, some will say Greeks, maybe in some Gentiles. Potato, potato. Yeah, tomato, tomato, right? Same deal. They preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Why? Because of what just happened with Peter. They're in Antioch. And look at verse 21. The hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believe turn to the Lord. Wonderful. Now, this church grows so greatly that the church back in Jerusalem hears about it and send them a pastor. Who do they send him? Barnabas. So there's one of our players that we're going to see here in Galatians. So Barnabas is sent. Barnabas is pastoring them. And uh, in verse 24, a great many more people are added to the Lord. So Barnabas isn't able to handle the work. So Barnabas needs an assistant pastor. Who does Barnabas go and fetch and call to be his co-pastor, his assistant pastor? Paul. And so now we have 
Barnabas. Now we have Paul. We have the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was the first church in history that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles together in one body. This is magnificent. This is amazing. This is slave and slave master together in the same church, loving the same God without distinction. This is glorious. Paul, Barnabas spend a whole year in this church, made up of this mixture of all of these differences, pastoring them, teaching them. It's wonderful. And in verse 26, it's the first place that they're called Christians. Now that word was probably first made up as a derisive, mocking word by those who are not Christians. But the Christians greatly embrace it. Because what does it mean? Yeah. It means a little Jesus. It's a wonderful term. The Christians loved it. So that's the kind of spirit going on in this church. It's like a bunch of little Jesuses there. It's wonderful. All right. So now we have that in place. This church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas there, mixed congregation, pastored by Paul and Barnabas. One other piece to put in place. So one was what happened with Peter going to Cornelius' house, the Gentiles' inclusion. Two was these Jews scattered. Some went to Antioch and finally preached the gospel to Gentiles. And this first church comes that is unified, not around ethnic distinction, not around food laws, not around circumstances, but around Jesus, pastored by Paul and Barnabas. The third thing is this table fellowship. We noted that Peter went to Cornelius' house and spent many days there eating with him at table with the Gentile Greeks. He's criticized for it. Not only do his critics say you went into his house, you ate with him. Why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Now, part of it is let this convict you. We Americans don't understand the importance of gathering around a table together. We consider it unessential. Hospitality isn't something we are great at. But in biblical faith, around a table was the prime way that you communicated Acceptance, welcome, love, family. It's like there's no greater act you could do to somebody to communicate to them, I love you, I'm with you, we're together. This is why throughout the Bible, when God wants to do something significant among his people, like start a new covenant, he invariably has a meal with them. Mount Sinai with the 70 elders and Moses. The Passover feast to be celebrated yearly. The Lord's Supper. The great marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of time. Meals, table fellowship, really, 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 really matter. It's massive. And then, one of the main ways we as Christians are exhorted to live Christianly is to practice hospitality. It's like a main Christian ethic. You have to invite people over. You you have to care enough for each other to share a meal together. It's like the main way we communicate our 
acceptance of each other. We're together in Christ. We eat together, even that. Especially given our distinctions, our differences. So table fellowship is massive. It's huge. And what the gospel provides is removal of all dietary, ethnic distinctions. And the table is the place that those distinctions are seen as gone. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we come equally before Jesus, removing all other distinctions. There's no male or female at the table. There is, but there isn't. It's not only men who are welcome. It's not only women who are welcome. It doesn't matter. It's not only slaves or slave masters who are welcome. Both to the same table, at the same, in the same kind of seats without distinction. Poor, rich, educated, uneducated, fat, thin, Democrat, Republican. All who have faith in Jesus are welcome without distinction at the table. And it's the table that we mainly communicate this. So table fellowship was massive. So, getting now back to Galatians, if you want to go back there. When Peter withdrew from the table, you get it? Oh my goodness. It was like he took a bucket of manure and threw it on the Gentiles. I mean, he gave them both middle fingers. He cursed them. I have no part with you. You have no part with us. You're not in Christ. And Peter, who went to Cornelius' house, who was the first to get this and relate it to everybody, who had already suffered the criticism of the circumcision party, Peter! I mean, Peter, what he was saying is, if you want to go to the parable of the treasure in the field that the guy found and he sold everything to buy the fields that could have the treasure? Jesus, the gospel? Peter had the treasure. And now he said, the only way to get that treasure is if you get the foreskin of your penis cut off. The only way to get the treasure is if you don't eat bacon. He just repudiated the treasure. Or he told all of those Gentiles, you can't have it unless you're just like us. We have eternal riches in Jesus only by faith. And Peter, for fear of man, despised it and did great harm to those Gentile Christians and to the gospel itself. That's all the background going on here. So now the stage is set. We have the place, Antioch. We have the people, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, the circumcision party, and the Gentile Christians. We have the context, the grace of God, when Jesus died, the curtain was what? Torn in two. What did that communicate? Anyone can come into God's presence. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. And what was Peter doing here? He was getting out his sewing needle and thread and trying to put that curtain back together. And he was lying. He was a hypocrite. He was saying that those Gentiles who were once far off had no hope in God. Those Gentiles who were brought near by the blood of Jesus weren't welcome at Jesus' table. 
because they weren't like the Jews. It was crazy. So what do we do with that? Well, let's, let's learn a few lessons. Let's consider our lives. We read in verse 14 that Paul rebuked Peter because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He def- that's the definition he gives of the term hypocrisy, which he used twice in this text, that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, Peter. Barnabas was even led astray by their hypocrisy. What does the term hypocrisy come from? Where is that term borrowed from? What part of our life? Theater. A hypocrite was somebody who put on a mask. Now, in the theater world, to be a hypocrite wasn't a bad thing. It was just what you did. Everybody knew that you were playing some other character. But in our lives, it's a bad thing. It's to say one thing and act differently. It's Peter saying, I hold so firmly to this truth of this gospel, and yet when the fire is, the heat is up, I'm going to live in a way that communicates the exact opposite of it. So what's the truth that Peter's being hypocritical about? Pastor Jeff is going to get at it next week. Look at verses 15 and 16. That Jews are not like Gentiles in that they have the law, and they're typically morally superior, but even they know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, what's the only way to heaven? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? What happens when you have faith in Jesus Christ? What happens to you? All of your sins are removed. And all of Jesus' perfect, holy obedience on earth, even his obedience to death on the cross, becomes your record. And you are eternally accepted by the Father in heaven. That's it. Period. No other law needed to keep in order to get into that. And Peter's behavior betrayed that truth. Now, it is true, not everyone is welcome at the table, are they? When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I say, all of you are welcome, but these are not welcome. Who isn't welcome to the table? Unbelievers. Without distinction, unbelievers. Not white unbelievers, not black unbelievers, not male unbelievers, not female unbelievers, not tall unbelievers, not short unbelievers, just unbelievers without distinction. They don't have a place at the table because they don't have Christ. Who else isn't welcome at the table? Hypocrites. Those whose life is consistently betraying their confession without repentance. Now, how many of you are a hypocrite? That's it? Well, you just answered your own question. How about that? You're doubly so. But there's those of us who do hypocritical things, and then there's those who are just hypocrites. And we warn them. Because if they continue on in their hypocrisy, they'll just be saying with their lives that they don't actually believe what they say with their lips. And so what can we learn this? 
Well, what we can learn is that the gospel of free acceptance with God is to define our lives. It's to define how we treat others. Peter is mistreating others here. By his behavior, he's betraying the truth of the free acceptance of God only by faith. So how are you treating others? This is the common ethic in the Bible, isn't it? How do we love each other? Now, here, we can make it specific or general. First, are we walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are we striving to be holy? Are we actually really caring and serious about our walk with the Lord? Is our walk with the Lord the foremost concern of our lives? We can do that. And then we can also say, just be so careful. I want to particularly to young people here. It is so tempting in the middle school, high school ages to be one way here and a completely different human being there. You go to youth group and you act one way and then outside you have filthy language. You talk about disgusting sexual things. Maybe you even participate in it. So we can do that. And then we can also say, how do we care for each other when there's some pressure on us that might cause some relational issues if we're seen with somebody else? So ladies, how do you talk about your husband with other ladies? Are you fearing what other women will think if you don't criticize your husband along with them? Now, I'm not applying that to men because I don't know if you ladies know this. When men are together, we don't talk about our wives. It's just not something guys do. It's not because we're more holy than you are. It's just not what we do. Guys, brothers, husbands, are you loving your wife with the kind of tenderness that Christ has loved you? Young people, do you have friends here at the youth group that you won't anyplace else because other places it's not cool to be friends with the friend at the youth group? Are, those that you, are, there, are there those that you are ostracizing just because they're odd relationally and you care too much what other people think about you? So this is what we see in Peter. So consider Peter here. Why is this in the Bible? Because Peter repented. Peter turned. Peter probably asked for their forgiveness. And so don't don't forget Peter. This is the same guy who betrayed Jesus and was restored. This is the same guy who had walked on the waves and then lost faith and sunk and was restored. And so Peter is rebuked. For his sin, but he comes back. Don't we need that? So we're not perfect yet. We're not sanctified all the way through yet. But we do have a greater need to walk and step with the gospel. So every Christian needs growth. 
Let me, let me illustrate that in Peter's life in one more place. Turn to John chapter 21, very end of John's gospel. So we're going back a few books towards the left. All right, this is Peter's restoration, chapter 21, beginning at verse 15. Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Three. He's dealing with Peter's sins straightforwardly, but restoring him. And at the end, in verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Verse 18, he had told Peter, you're going to die. You're going to suffer for the gospel. Follow me. Now, Peter is here restored. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? He, with Jesus right there, about to die, denied him three times, and Jesus comes right to him face to face and restores him. What does Peter do next? He says to Jesus, hey, John, what about John? Look at verse 21. Lord, what about him? I mean, (laughs) aren't you Peter? And look at what God does with him. It's after this that God sends Peter to Cornelius' house. Don't we see both our great need for repentance in Galatians that we're just like Peter and yet the restoration of God and that you'll need it again and again and again and again? And so receive that encouragement. Peter sinned greatly. He was corrected. Peter sinned again. And he was corrected. Well, what is Peter's main sin here? What's the why? Why does he do what he did in Galatians? Why does he separate from table fellowship with the Gentiles because they weren't Jewish? Why? What's the heart motivation? You see it at the end of verse 12. He feared man. Is there any greater place in your life that you see your need for Christ than in what, that you are often enslaved by what people think about you? Huh? I mean, young people, when you get into those middle high school ages, the need to know how you appear before others and accepted by them like goes to an unbelievable place. It'll come back to normal, Maybe. But during those years, the pressure that you feel to be accepted and to appear right is massive. And it may cause you to consider how you dress as a woman. How are you dressing? Are you dressing to catch people's eye, to please man, or to please God? Young men, in your speech, are you speaking very jokingly and effeminately because you want the other guys to laugh at you constantly? Or is your speech pleasing to the Lord? But fear of man. We're coming up on the holidays. Maybe some of you will be our own family members that don't love Christ and criticize you, and so you're going to be very afraid of what they're going to think about you, and you're going to compromise. Or maybe you younger people will have a sibling that you love at home with and you play with, but then when you're around the older cousins, you'll abandon. Maybe even make fun of because of fear of them. Maybe do this at work. You're a Christian between the ears at work. Nobody else knows. 
because you just fear what people think about you. And so, what, what do you need? Christ. That's it. To know that if you have acceptance with God because of simple faith in Jesus, what can man do to you? One other lesson before we close with the gospel. Paul rebukes Peter. And we can learn lots of lessons about that, but one of the main things I want you to ask yourself is, can you bear being corrected by others? Peter bears it publicly. Uh, It may be that Paul went to Peter privately, but public sin means a public rebuke. And in 1 Timothy 5, an elder is to be publicly rebuked before all. Peter withstands it. Do you have the humility to be corrected? To admit, to see that you're actually wrong, and that's okay. Because Christ is enough. Husbands, can you bear your wife's correction? Wives, can you allow your husband once a month to tell you you're wrong? That's about the ratio, isn't it? Come on. That's the ratio. If you don't admit it, you're... Yeah. So can you bear being told you're wrong? Peter is wrong, right? He has the faith to bear correction. Paul loves Peter greatly. He loves the gospel in a more greater way. All right, so the gospel. I want you to focus here on verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Truth of the gospel. We can just simplify that. Take it out of this specific issue and just say, the gospel is true. You know that? We want fair elections. We want truth. And here is the truth of truths. The gospel. It's worth defending in a pretty crazy way. It's worth believing when you don't believe anything else. So you, do you doubt your salvation? Go to the gospel. Go to the news that Jesus died and rose for you. That's the truth. Right? That's the truth. Do you fear something that's to come in the future. You see something coming and you're afraid. Go to the truth. To the gospel. Are you anxious about what your children are going to do in five or ten years? Go to the gospel, to the truth. Are you disgusted by the outcome of the elections? Are glad about them? Like, go to Jesus. He's the truth. It's the truth of the gospel. Don't lose that phrase, the truth of the gospel. It's true. It's real. It's fact. It eternally saves you unto God. It's true. So if you don't believe it, you're a liar. 
And when I say, if you don't believe it, I could be talking about those who just don't believe it wholeheartedly. And those of you who, when you're in trouble or in sin, it's like you don't believe it. Believe it. You are forgiven. You are counted completely, perfectly righteous in Jesus. You have nothing but eternal life in your future and nothing but God's good pleasure in your present. Believe it. Don't be so stubborn. Don't be so proud. Is your sin the only sin in the world that keep you from God? What are you so vain? Believe the gospel. It's enough for you. Are you just bent all out of shape that your friends have rejected you? They're liars. Jesus is true. Believe it. Get over yourself. Believe it. Right? Because what keeps you from believing it? Your pride. That's it. Believe it. Love it. Love him. Because he loves you. Right? All right, let's pray. Father, help us. We are vain. We are proud. Our every intention of our heart, apart from Christ, is evil continually. Sin wages war against our souls. Job says he's he's vile. Peter says without Christ he perishes. We do too. And so give us faith in your Son. Give us faith to be corrected like Peter was. Give us faith like Paul to stand up publicly where it's needed. Give us faith to accept one another as we've been accepted in Christ. God, help us to do it because we believe the truth of your Son's life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and soon coming. And help us to live like that's true. Please, Father, help us. We are so weak. We're so small. We're so frail. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit to work within us this faith. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.